Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. And NPR's Debbie Elliott is also here. Hey, Debbie. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So we invited you, we invited all of you here because we are going to talk about country music and American politics. And this all started the idea for this pod with Ron, um, who I know that you've been thinking about this for a while, ever since the death of Loretta Lynn. She passed away in the fall at the age of 90. So if you could start by telling us who she is and and what, what got you going on this idea. Loretta Lynn was known as the first lady of country music. Uh, she had an extraordinary career that went on for decades and decades. Uh, she is, the, in many senses, the central character, not only in Coal Miner's Daughter, the famous movie with uh, Sissy Spacek playing her, but also in a movie called Nashville, uh, which uh, is is not nearly as well known as, as a movie, but uh, but which was about the Nashville of the early 1970s and uh, foresaw many things in terms of the use of country music in politics. Uh, very sophisticated film. And Loretta Lynn, I, I, just, I just cannot imagine country music without Loretta Lynn. She is a musical icon and, in a sense, a cultural icon because she expresses the degree to which country music comes out of the populist tradition of American cultural pride in humble origins. Is there a particular song that when you think of Loretta Lynn, you think of this song and what she means? Well, Don, wouldn't that have to be, wouldn't that have to be Coal Miner's Daughter? It would, it would because, uh, that was uh, uh, the title of her biography. There was a film, but it's also such an iconic song that tells her story. Well, I was born to call miner's daughter In a cabin on a hill in Butcher Holler And let's not forget another song Loretta Lynn did. This was in the mid-'70s. It was called The Pill. And it was a hit on country radio. The pill being the birth control pill. Exactly. And this this became a feminist anthem. Mini skirts, hot pants, and a few little fancy frills. Yeah, I'm making up for all those years since I've got the pill. She describes the pill as this liberating thing. Uh, that allows her some measure of control over her life. And there it is in uh, in three chords in a country song. And Debbie, was that, I mean, we're talking about the mid-70s. We've made it through the late 60s and the early 70s. In the country music world, was that a non-controversial thing to talk about? No, it was very controversial. I mean, the pill was revolutionary for women, but there were some country music stations that would not play Loretta Lynn's song, The Pill, because it was so controversial at the time. That's right. And and of all the proto-feminist songs, uh, this was probably the least likely because uh, Loretta Lynn was not associated with any kind of uh, hippiness or any kind of left-wing, West Coast, uh, San Francisco, you know, all of that 1960s stuff from the late 60s. Uh, she wasn't even from the folk tradition, really. The, the, the folk tradition that's very closely related to country music, but which had a strong left populist, even radical tradition politically associated with people like Woody Guthrie, for example. 
So here's my question. Was she a political force? Was she a political figure? I think the answer to that, listening to these songs, is yes. And I think she knew it. And I think she was trying to change change people's lives and change the world in her own way through these songs. Do you agree, Ron? I think that comes out in the movie uh, where uh, she is shown asserting herself in many different ways, uh, both as an artist and as a businesswoman and as a woman, as a wife, if you will, and, and changing the rules, changing the assumptions about how people live together in that era. Uh, the other thing, though, was that she realized she could could be a political force and went to work for, uh, well, conservative politicians. She went to work for George H.W. Bush in the 1988 campaign. She went on stage with him. She would talk about him. She would say, look, folks, I know George Bush and he is country. And she would say <laughs> it's the no way. no one she... would believe otherwise because <laughs> I mean... he is Maine. Oh, my goodness <laughs> sakes. He, he was... is kind of bunk port. He Maine. was the least <laughs> country western president possibly ever and, and <laughs> it just was it it was ridiculous and yet she had such credibility that when she stood on a stage and introduced him that way then he could get up and say anything he wanted and he was legitimate in the eyes of Loretta Lynn fans so Debbie is country music Republican music? You know, a, a lot of people associate it with Republican politics because you have these huge country music stars like Lee Greenwood and his God Bless the USA song that's become pretty much an anthem on the campaign trail, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you also have um, other musicians who take the other side. Um, I think about Jason Isbell, who is from North Alabama, um, used to be with the drive-by truckers, sort of a Southern rock group. He sometimes is considered Americana. He's a fabulous songwriter. And he has flat out um, supported Democratic candidates. He supported Alabama Senator Doug Jones. Um, during his campaigns, he supported um, Beto in, in Texas. Um, and he writes songs that are about politics. You know, he has a song out right now with Buddy Guy that talks about mass shootings. He and his wife, Amanda Shires, wrote a song about abortion. So he does not shy away about who he is. And if it alienates his listeners, he says that's okay. And Jason Isbell, uh, Debbie, as you, as you know, I'm sure, is... Uh, Eager to engage on Twitter. Oh, yes. And it's not just his songs. He will get into arguments and uh, he'll confront those. Just shut up and sing. Uh, we like your songs. Keep the politics out of it. And he says, it's the whole package. This is who I am. And uh, it's it's fascinating to watch him engage on all of these levels. And I think we, all know, know, I we, think... All, know, we all know the saga of the Dixie Chicks. And how they went to the absolute zenith of country popularity. And then Natalie Maines, the lead singer, you know, made a remark about how ashamed she was of George Bush W., that is, George W. Bush, uh, during the Iraq War. And uh, they plummeted. They came back, certainly in terms of their reputation. But People but were I don't... burning their CDs. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were they were persona non grata in Nashville for a while, but— And blacklisted from country radio. Now, of course, they did make a comeback, and they changed their name to just The Chicks, and perhaps found a new audience, but I think also brought back many of their original fans. 
but but it is it is it is difficult to overstate how much they were they were denigrated because of that political stand. At the same time, we have always had people like Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson goes back to the 1950s when he first wrote uh, uh, "Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain." When he first wrote uh, "Crazy." He was Crazy. writing fabulous Crazy. songs for Patsy Cline, uh, you know, before any of us would have been being born, and that is that is that is a tradition in country music as well, because L- Willie Nelson has always been a, a, a very liberal li- leftist, whatever you want to call him, progressive populist figure. Willie Nelson's songs are not political, I wouldn't say. I mean, maybe he sneaks one in here and there, and he's been a strong advocate for years and years, decades, for the legalization of marijuana. I mean, isn't there some story about him at the White House during Jimmy Carter's presidency? There, <laughs> there Was is. Was he on the roof smoking dope? I, I, believe, <laughs> I believe it's that uh, he smoked dope uh, I think on the roof of the White House, it may have been one of the balconies with uh, with Chip Carter, one of Jimmy's sons. Wow! <laughs> and um, and those were the times. Yeah, right? those were the these, these were the late seventies. <laughs> Debbie, I want you to talk about the connection between George Wallace and country music. And George Wallace is um, the former Alabama governor, famous for you know, declaring segregation forever, right? Um, Known for segregation more than any other, probably, politician from the 1960s. Um, But he went on to to launch independent campaigns for the presidency in 68 and in 72. And um, country music fans were behind him, and some of the most popular country musicians at the time. Tammy Wynette would sing that song, Stand By Your Man, at his campaign rally. So was she singing that because it was one of her greatest hits or was she singing that because the idea was that people needed to stay with George Wallace no matter what? Yeah, the idea was stand behind George Wallace. He's your man, right? Um, And it was, you know, pretty effective. I mean, he launched pretty remarkable independent campaigns given his history at the time. Other country music stars were behind him as well. Um, Minnie Pearl. Remember Minnie Pearl from the Grand Ole Opry who wore the hat with the price tag on it? Oh, yeah. Howdy. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So I wanted to ask you about this, Don. Um, that Stand By Your Man and Tammy Wynette came um, came up again in the 90s, right? Do you remember that episode with Hillary Clinton? This was just before the big primaries in 1992. Bill Clinton is running for president, and uh, there are all kinds of things swirling around about his treatment of women and extramarital affairs and all that. So he and his wife, Hillary, sat down on the couch for an interview on 60 Minutes. And she was asked about her husband's alleged affairs and how she has stood by him. And this is what transpired. You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. I'm sitting here because I love him and I respect him and I honor what he's been through and what we've been through together. And you know, if that's not enough for people, then heck, 
don't vote for him. Needless to say, Tammy Winnett took offense uh, at at that reference there by uh, by the future first first lady. lady, and it set off this whole thing where uh, Hillary Clinton and. Barbara Bush, the current first lady, uh, married to George H.W. Bush, had a cookie bake-off <laughs> and 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 everything else. But uh, the song, the song had a moment there in the early 1990s. Again, stand by your man. All right, we are going to take a quick break. Stand by with us. We will be back in a second. And we're back. We've mostly been talking about the uh, the solid connection between Republican politicians and country music. But there are also country musicians who are Democrats or allied with Democrats or affiliated with Democrats. So um, what is that relationship like? We've talked about it a little, but let's get into it a little more. Barack Obama, in his first year in office, uh, started this tradition that he carried out through his entire presidency where he would have themed music nights at the White House. There'd be jazz night at the White House, soul night at the White House, blues night at the White House. The very first one he did in 2009 was country music night at the White House. And we were all like, oh, he's uh, he's trying to like... Uh, he's triangulating. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, and he had... Uh, Alison Krauss and Brad Paisley, two big stars and stellar musicians in. He also had Charlie Pride. Mm. And if people don't know Charlie Pride, uh, his uh, his career started in kind of that golden 1960s era of country music and continued into the 70s and in the 80s. He was the first big mainstream African-American star. And what in country music? What is he known for? What is his greatest hit? So one of his biggest hits, uh, and this is pretty typical of the Charlie Pride sound. It's called "Kiss an Angel Good Morning." You've got to kiss an angel good morning and let her know you think about her when you're gone. In a lot of ways, Charlie Pride was political just by being there, just by being himself, and just by being an African-American on stage at the Grand Ole Opry and singing these mainstream country songs. He came to the White House that day in 2009, and I was on the beat then, and I made it a point to pull him aside and interview him. And you could tell he didn't really want to talk politics, uh, but he did express great pride at the notion that we had a black man in the White House for the first time. And you could tell that he he understood what was going on there in ways that the rest of us could not. I don't want to belabor it, but I do believe that uh, everybody that's born on this planet is born for a certain thing. I believe there's a certain amount of divine purpose. I think 47 years ago, he was born to be where he is today. Charlie Pride played himself in uh, Nashville, the Robert Altman movie that I mentioned earlier from uh, from the 1970s. Uh, and there is a scene in which uh, his race uh, breaks up a, a, a restaurant. Uh, that that is uh, that is part of the story around around country music and politics, because. Well, the George Wallace Association that we've already mentioned 
And that was picked up on. Debbie, I want to hear you talk a little bit about this because I know you have an interest in it. That was picked up on by Richard Nixon and made a big part of Richard Nixon's whole appeal to the South and to the forgotten American. Right. There's this sense that um, there's the story of when country music was first discovered in the 20s, People look down on it as like that hillbilly music. This is for a bunch of morons, right? And so the fact that country musicians could find a sense of pride and a sense of people uh, think we matter, that changed things. Can we talk about Dolly Parton? Because I think of her as someone who transcends politics, that that she is um, she's just this beloved figure. But is that right? I think that's right. It, that sounds right to me. I, I don't think I can associate uh, Dolly Parton with any kind of a political figure. And I, I stand to be corrected. If she's done it, uh, then uh, I've missed it. But in the sense that Loretta Lynn went all in for George H.W. Bush and certainly other uh, country artists have associated themselves. I think of Brooks and Dunn, for example, campaigning with uh, George W. Bush. And Dolly Parton, as far as I know, has not done that. She has been larger, if you will. She has been a a metacultural figure. And that's what I think a lot of these musicians um, strive for, right? I think about Garth Brooks, for example, huge country music star, huge following in very red territory. Well, he played at President Biden's inauguration and got a lot of flack for it. But guess what? In this last year, on his tour of stadiums around the country, he was selling them out and setting records. People were still coming. The interesting thing about somebody like Dolly Parton is um, while you don't associate her with one party or another, she does come across as very much the activist. I mean, she has things she believes in, and the maybe influencer, if you will, exactly. Right? And it's 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 childhood literacy, or uh, I guess was it a political stand when she uh, promoted vaccines the way she did in in the past few years? I don't know that it was a political stand when she started, mm-hmm. but but by the time she got her second dose. Vaccines had become COVID vaccines had become politicized, but she had invested in the research. She had helped fund the research into the Moderna vaccine. So she's in a place that I don't know that we've really seen an example of it prior to Dolly, uh, where she uh, is not affiliated with political positions, but she is uh, admired, revered as as an activist and as a person who wants to make a difference and make the world better. You know, we can't talk about Dolly Parton, though, without talking about her famous song, Nine to Five, which some could say was a political song. It was sort of asserting the rights of women in the workforce, right? Yeah. And and ultimately, years later, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren in her presidential campaign used this as like her walkout song. So I, this is sort of a bigger question than just country. And, and I think we're going to end with it. But there are a lot of musicians who are affiliated with politicians. I think of John Legend. I think of, you know, how many Bruce Springsteen concerts have oh, I seen Lord. on the night before an election? 
yes. in Ohio. Yes. James Taylor with John Kerry. James Karen. Taylor is what comes to my mind. I think he's played at every Democratic convention I've ever covered. I've seen Lady Gaga. I've seen Bon Jovi, all while covering campaigns. I've seen Toby Keith at George W. Bush events. I've seen Lee Greenwood perform live uh, for both George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Donald Trump really did claim this song, and I don't think there's any going back. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, and I won't forget the men... I, I asked Lee Greenwood about that line, uh, I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I was like, That's, that seems like you're kind of selling us a little short, like, oh, at least we're free. <laughs> but he had an answer. He said, you can take everything else away. And if we have that, that is something that we treasure and that we can build on. And that's that's where he was coming from with that particular line. So my question is, all these musicians campaign with politicians. Does it work? Does it succeed at getting people to vote for these politicians? Does it help? I remember watching Bruce Springsteen bring out an enormous crowd for Mike Dukakis. And I do not believe that that so crowd <laughs> would have Didn't overflowed the Didn't entire take. city square of Madison, Wisconsin, just for Mike Dukak. As we say, crowds don't vote, right? The uh, the rally crowd doesn't. Uh, I mean, maybe they vote. Maybe they voted. Those aren't votes. But Michael Dukakis is not president of the United States or former president. Um, he's just not. I mean, that's similar to a question of, you know, how much do political endorsements matter, right? It is. And and maybe the answer is just that... It depends. <laughs> these musicians entertain the crowd. These musicians make these people want to come to this rally, and and it's a benefit to the supporters of these politicians. It, it's all about improving the odds and moving the needle a little bit. Like, maybe this ad that gets everybody talking helps. Uh, maybe the fact that Bruce Springsteen came gets people a little more enthused. And... All of the things that a campaign does and all of the millions they spend over the course of the years is designed to move that needle, each thing, just a little bit. So maybe you do win by that uh, uh, one percentage point in Pennsylvania. That's enough to tip the balance. Well, you have to admit that music definitely makes politics more palatable. <laughs> Debbie, like a spoonful of sugar. <laughs> it's, like trying to imagine, it's like trying to imagine a movie without music. I mean, there is such a thing. It's called a documentary or, you know, it, it's, it's called an unentertaining movie. But all movies that try to move you emotionally use music and politicians do, too. Well, let's leave it there for today. Debbie Elliott, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Oh, my pleasure. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 